Hello, and welcome to the e-commerce playbook podcast. My name is Andrew Ferris. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the show. Today on the show, I have a guest from our sponsor for the month. That's Wayflyer, revenue-based finance partner for e-commerce brands. And Stephen is a fantastic guest. You're going to really like this show. It is basically all around the finance side of e-commerce businesses. You know how important I think that is, how important the Common Thread Collective team thinks that is. You know, we've run brands and we understand that like marketing creates all kinds of challenges, but actually the thing that is determining the health of so many e-commerce businesses is their financial engine and how well they are using the right finance tools, thinking about finance in their business, etc. So Stephen has the perspective of somebody who sees how tons of e-commerce brands are using different financial tools to fund their growth. And I think you are going to like hearing from him quite a bit. He has a whole way of thinking about short-term versus long-term growth and the right funding options. And yes, he is from Wayflyer, but just spoiler alert, he is not going to tell you that Wayflyer is the right partner for every kind of growth that you are trying to fund in e-commerce. In fact, at one point in the show, Stephen has something I'd never thought about in these terms before, but something that stuck out to me a ton in this interview was sort of seven different financial tools you can use to fund growth and how to best position each one of them. So really, really helpful stuff. If you are operating a business and thinking about how to fund your growth, stay tuned. You're going to like this interview a lot. Let's jump in. All right, Stephen, welcome to the e-commerce playbook podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Andrew. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. I think immediately listeners to the show will notice that your voice has a little bit of a different sound than some others. So tell the people where you're, where we're talking to you from. So I'm currently in Ireland, then the southeast of Ireland. So yeah, it's nice. Nice summer day here. That's awesome. We were just discussing ahead of time that you are happy to be there during the summer and during the winter. It can be a little much. Yeah, that's right. So I'm actually based in Sydney, Australia, most of the time. So I'm um, I'm kind of trading summers right now. So I'm spending the Australian winter in Ireland, and then once the weather starts to get a bit worse here, I'll be uh, back to Sydney. Yeah, that's awesome. That seems like a good way to do it. Tell people in both of those places before we jump in, what's like a place that they should go in Ireland and in Australia that they wouldn't think of right away? Oh, great question. So in Ireland, it's for sure like the West Coast. So. A lot of people spend a lot of time in Dublin. I would spend like two, three days in Dublin max, then get out of there, go to the West Coast, drive up and down, go to the little towns all around there. That's kind of the real Ireland. And I think, the, yeah, yeah it's, it's a really cool place. Awesome. Any tips in, around Sydney or around Australia? Yeah, you know, kind of on a similar vibe, I would just like get out of the cities, right? Like it, the cities are cool, but like spend a couple of days there and then just go up and down the coast. So I live in Sydney, but you even go two hours north and you're into some really cool little surf towns, great place to spend a few days. Yeah. All right. So there you go. That's bonus. That's free on this episode. So you figure if you've got somebody who's spending a lot of time, I think most of our listeners are US-based and I'm sure a lot of them are trying to get to Europe and Australia and Ireland. So there you go. All right, let's get into it. So you, Stephen, work with Wayflyer. And you know I've talked about before that Wayflyer was actually one of the partners we used when I was at 4x400 to help fund our growth at different moments. Just tell people for a second, at least, kind of what the main core of Wayflyer, Wayflyer's product is and in terms of what you guys do. And I actually, from there, want to get into... Just so people have the background with you. But from there, I want to get into some elements of sort of how Wayflyer fits in and really especially how finance and funding works in an e-commerce business. You have a unique perspective on that from your position at Wayflyer. So yeah, so start just giving people a little bit of background on Wayflyer. Totally. So... Very simplistically, we provide funding to help e-commerce businesses with their working capital needs. How we do that is through what we call revenue-based financing, which essentially will give cash to an e-commerce business. They'll spend it on their working capital, typically buying stock or spending it on marketing. 
And then they basically make repayments to us as a percentage of their revenue over time. So we got started only a couple of years ago, but we've been growing super quick, provided funding now to over, I think, 1,500 e-commerce businesses, over a billion dollars in funding. The businesses we funded last year did over 13 billion in revenue totally. So it's been a, been a pretty crazy ride. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, the whole ecosystem of available capital for e-commerce businesses makes sense the way that it's popped up because anybody who's been in a growing e-com business knows that funding growth is incredibly hard. And that sounds almost like, oh, you know, you say that on a sponsored podcast, but no, like it's incredibly hard. Like the game is pretty capital intensive in terms of obviously advertising and all that, you know, with advertising, if things are going well, it may or may not be as much of a challenge related to the dollars themselves just because you're getting money back really fast. But the problem is, unless you are existing at a four and five, you know, ROAS, or you have the greatest margins in the history of the world, and there are a few exceptions where that's the case, it's just incredibly hard to keep growing and funding your inventory growth because along the way, it is costing you more and more and more money to buy the next round of larger and larger amounts of inventory. And so it quickly becomes a really, really big challenge. And this is where brands, and certainly this happened for me when I was running 4 100 get into really challenging cash positions. And that's before you talk about when things aren't going well and, and that sort of thing, and you actually just need some buffer. So I think it makes tons of sense that this ecosystem has come up and growth funding is just a really significant challenge. You have framed this, Stephen, a little bit as sort of long-term versus short-term. Do you want to sort of jump into how you are seeing brands need working capital sort of big picture? Totally. So what I would say is e-commerce businesses are fantastic businesses because you often have really, really strong margins and you can scale them actually super quickly if you know what you're doing. But the one big problem that they have is a working capital problem. And so I can tell you a bit more about that, but it's a problem that e-commerce businesses have that a lot of other businesses actually don't have. And so what I mean by that is you always basically need more cash than you have on hand. And what drives that is what you're saying is basically having to buy inventory. So if you're purchasing inventory, typically your suppliers are making you pay 30% on order, 70% on shipment. And so you've got to put all that money at the door, wait a couple of months for them to arrive, and then start selling them before you get any money back in your account, right? So you're just structurally disadvantaged from a working capital perspective. That gets even worse if you're growing fast because you're having to order way more than the sales you're making today. If you're planning, like right now, a lot of brands are going to be planning right for like Q4, probably have been already for the last few months or quarters. And they're buying way more than they're selling in these couple of months. So it gets even worse. And it gets even worse if you're a highly seasonal business where we have lots of businesses who make maybe 80, 90% of all their sales in like a couple of months. I mean, the rest of it, then they're, you know, they're quite cash poor, but that's when they're actually having to purchase their inventory. And so when we think about it, that's all the working capital. And really to drive your short-term growth, you need to have a really good solution to that structural disadvantage that you have from a working capital perspective. Long-term growth, it's a bit different and I can get into that. But what we are really focused on is how we solve that working capital problem so the brands can really invest and drive their short-term growth. Yeah, I mean, so the seasonal thing I, I perked up at right away because we ran into this exact problem. So 4400, one of our brands, longtime listeners of the show will know, was Fielder's Choice Goods. So we sold wallets made out of baseball gloves. And basically, it's a gift for dads and for other men, but for sort of a baseball fans in the US. And it was overwhelmingly like, I think like 80% of our sales essentially came within two 30-day windows. One of them would be the sort of peak holiday. And then the other one would be around Father's Day. And so it was really challenging. And one of the big problems there was that on top of the seasonality that generally is kind of a problem, 
it also meant that like, especially when you're growing, not only is seasonal cash flow hard in the first place, but you're trying to predict these massive moments. And so sort of laying aside enough inventory required not only the cash to do it, but also a forecast. And so we had very little wiggle room in the forecast ultimately, because we were not funding with anything else. We were just trying to bootstrap it. And so it's like sort of take whatever cash you have on hand and put it aside for inventory and hope that you have enough to capture the demand of this 30 day cycle and then rinse and repeat every six months. And anybody who's been around e-commerce for a little bit knows that actually like forecasting that kind of growth in those, especially in those early stages is basically impossible. You have so little historic data to work with. You're dependent on how your ads are going to work and the product releases and offers work and all those kinds of things. And so you're playing this really tight game. Whereas like actually having some money set aside to think in advance about, or to sort of like give yourself some wiggle room and some buffer to make sure you can really take advantage of the moment if it gets bigger than you think, or you can weather it if it's smaller than you think and can extend it out, then it's just like a massive, massive advantage, especially if you are actually seeing those moments grow every year where Father's Day gets bigger this year than the next and and so on. So I strongly relate to that problem because it's it's really an issue. You in particular, Stephen, talked about this in terms of short-term growth, maybe versus long-term growth and sort of your focus on short-term. I'm assuming what you're getting at there is sort of equity versus debt in terms of how you would think about those two with equity as a more of a long-term solution and debt as a short-term solution. Yeah, exactly. Like that's the kind of simple way to draw that line. Like there is some long-term debt options that I think are good for long-term growth. So for example, if you're looking at a bank loan, perhaps to buy a warehouse where you can actually use that warehouse as collateral on the loan, then you know that's actually a decent long-term investment where you're using debt. But apart from that, typically we kind of advise people to think of them as two very, very different things, right? You're using something like revenue-based financing, like a working capital solution to fund your short-term debt equity-based financing to share or to fund your long-term growth, equity-based financing for, for your long-term growth. And you really don't want to mix those up because we have seen brands who mix those up, start using all this equity capital that they've raised to buy inventory and actually work through these working capital cycles. And it can go really badly, really quick for them. I'm curious to hear you unpack that a little more. Like, Talk about what that cycle is. Yeah. So I kind of call it like the vicious cycle of equity funding. So essentially you run into the place where, okay, we need to buy inventory. We're looking at maybe making whatever it is, a few hundred K million bucks of inventory orders. So you go out and you raise money and you sell equity, right? Because maybe you've got a lot of equity investors who are interested in your brand, whatever else it is. You sell 10% of your company, you raise that money, you spend it on the inventory. But now you're looking at, well, where am I going to invest? What money am I going to use to invest in my longer term growth? And those categories I typically see as kind of product development, entering new markets, building your team. And what actually happens is you don't have that cash available anymore because you spent all your equity funding on your working capital needs and your inventory. So you've got less cash in the business, right? And so then what do you got to do? Well, you got to sell more equity, right? And so it kind of kicks off this really, really vicious cycle where you're just constantly selling equity in your business just to keep the lights on from a working capital perspective. You're not investing anything in your long-term growth. And eventually the chickens come home to roost on that. So you get 12 months down the line, you haven't grown your business, you haven't developed any products, and you're just kind of stuck in this position where you sold a lot of your business, but actually we haven't grown as much as you would have wanted to. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, particularly around the uses of capital relative to the goals that like the notion that you would use equity for things like product development and entering new markets and building a team. What I think that reflects is like a target for a business that's set around like a very big goal where you'd go like, hey, we think this is a 100, 200, 500 million dollar business or whatever, right? And so what we're going to need to get there to get to that level of scale is not just one or two products that we believe in or whatever, 
we're going to need to build out a whole significant product roadmap. And that takes time and that takes development. It takes working with manufacturers. It takes all those kinds of things, which takes people. And, you know, again, you have to kind of be ready for that timeline. And so it makes perfect sense that you'd go and say like, hey, we have a giant outcome that we're trying to pursue. And so equity becomes the funding answer to that. And we actually want to get some people involved who are strategic in that respect as well. Maybe they have connections to all those different elements and all that versus yeah, inventory cycles, which is just so different when you think about like where you're trying to go. So I think one of the things that opens up is something like a solution like Wayflyer or or whatever for a business that is otherwise actually mostly bootstrapped. And they're just using that for these shorter term growth cycles and, and that sort of thing where you're going like, I don't need to think about trying to create a $500 million outcome, but I do need to get enough inventory to go from 5 million to seven and a half or 5 million to 10 or whatever. And that, that becomes a, you know, still it's a major cash challenge, especially if you haven't raised and you don't have equity on hand. And yet like you need a solution to that. And so it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. You have talked about a little bit the that vicious cycle and the cost of equity. And this is something I think people... I think our mix and how they think about, you know, equity is you sort of alluded to it when you just said is and can be expensive in a certain respect. Obviously, it's very cheap in terms of if you don't have a good outcome. But if you're actually getting to where you're trying to go, then it's incredibly expensive because you're going to give up a lot of money in the long term. And so it becomes a really poor way to finance short term growth. Can you just talk a little bit more about the distinction in cost between equity versus debt, long-term versus short-term, and sort of any examples you have of how you see that playing out? Yeah, totally. I want to be clear. I'm definitely not against right using equity funding to grow your business. Uh, it's just, no, like, just a, yeah. it's a different point, right? It's a different purpose. Exactly. Exactly. Different purpose, and you just want to go into it with your eyes wide open, right? So, in terms of the costs, right? If you're looking at something like revenue-based financing or a bank loan, there's just like a very clear like dollar cost associated with that. You calculate it up front. It's the interest or the fee, whatever else it is, and you know what it's going to be. With equity funding, you know, there's two costs. Like one is the fact that you're basically giving up a share of your business for the entirety of its future. And so that's going to be both from a valuation perspective and also any dividends that you end up taking out of the business. If you give up 10%, that's 10% gone forever. You're not getting it back. And the example kind of I have of this is Figs, which is one of the biggest like DC e-commerce success stories. They went public last year. When I checked last time, they're probably not worth this anymore. But when I checked last, they're worth like $6 billion. And I found out I was digging through like some of their IPO filings. And there's this dude who owns like 58% of figs when they IPO'd. And so I was crawling back and I was like, how much did this guy pay for, for that 58%? And so basically only two or three years before they IPO'd, this guy, Thomas Tull, he bought like 58% of figs and he spent $50 million to get it. So he turned that $50 million into something like... 3.5 billion and Jeez. great story for him like amazing the guy's a genius hopefully he sold it hopefully <laughs> but if you are the founders of figs like obviously you did well right like you're yeah totally you've had a, an amazing outcome you built a fantastic business fantastic brand but like you've got to be thinking wow like that was a lot of money for me to give up and the big thing is like when i look at it it's like they didn't need to right like they were they were big companies they had access to other sources of finance perhaps there's something i'm not aware of from a strategic perspective that they wanted this investor on board but it's just very very expensive to give up three and a half billion dollars and so yeah that that's yeah. kind of how i think about it the other thing as well to think about is it's not just financial costs right there are other costs that come along with it in terms of like control and the amount of like requirements that you're going to have in on your business if you've got investors that you need to report to as well. Totally. Yeah. I mean, because so at 4,500, we had raised a million dollars very early. And there's no question that like taking on the obligation was its own cost to investors. And 
that's a real thing what you just talked about when you're running a company. Like you, you need to know what you said is right. Eyes wide open about what you're buying when you're or what you're selling when you're selling equity and what you're getting in return for that because it's definitely significant. That fix example is so fascinating. The amount of money they gave up by selling that much equity is crazy. I don't know that whole story either. And who knows what the ins and outs are exactly. But when you just put those numbers next to each other, it's just like so shocking. It's bananas. So yeah, I just looked while we're talking and I think their value, their market cap now is 1.6. So it definitely has gone down a lot. But the point remains, right? Even if Tom still had gotten at that, 1.6, he still still would have gotten 12x on his money or something like that, you know, in a very short time period. So, so even if he's totally held it, he's still doing great. Uh, what about on the other side? I mean, that's a fun story, and IPO stories are always fun in e-commerce land because it's just like there's not that many of them really for e-com brands still and for D2C brands, like, and they're always fun to go look through their filings and everything. But I mean, I think a lot of brands are not looking to go quite to that level necessarily for them to have a successful outcome. You know, they, they want to get to. 20, 50, sell to PE or something like that, or sell to an aggregator or whatever. Can you talk on the other side of sort of brands you see getting this right, that you've seen use this effectively and fund their growth in a way where it's like this really worked out well? Yeah, heaps. Like, I mean, I would almost yeah. go as far to say as the majority of brands who I see who are like really crushing it at the minute are, are using revenue-based financing as a way to kind of like fund their short-term growth and then using like strategic capital like equity to fund their long-term growth. Like it's kind of the best-in-class playbook, I would say now. Yeah. A couple of examples of brands that we've specifically worked with are, one is Spoke. They're a UK menswear brand, really cool company founded by Ben Farron. And so what they did was they used revenue-based financing purely actually to fund their marketing spend. So they wanted to spend a bit more on marketing and decided to actually go outside and use somebody else's money essentially to go and do this and to scale the marketing. So they put that money into, well, two things really was First was they just got the channels that they had that were already working and they had where they had good ROAS and they just put more capital into it, right? Capital that they didn't have themselves, but when they were using Redflowers, they could. And then the second one was they used it to test new channels, right? So they tested out stuff like YouTube and direct mail and stuff like this. And they had huge results out of it. So they actually got an additional like 30,000 customers out of this and purely by taking a pocket of money that if they were only looking internally wasn't available to them, they were able to go outside, use this working capital solution to acquire all these customers. And of course, like it pays back super quick because you basically generated so much ROI on the marketing that you've generated that whatever fees you're paying on the working capital solution is like super minimal. Do you know if they were running that against sort of an LTV calculation? Because in apparel and fashion, you could imagine that working where you, if you actually are able to sell to people and they come back and buy from you. And I've seen some apparel brands where this is the case, like given a long enough timeline, customers go from being worth a dollar today to $3 over a couple of years, you know, if you're in tripling their value, the timeline to realizing that value can be a little bit long sometimes, you know, a couple of years, something like that, which makes perfect sense for debt to fund. If you can actually bank the future value in a way that you know, then it's just a matter of figuring out how much you'd be willing to pay for the capital to fund the customer acquisition. And once you get there, then it's just a math problem at that point. You're like, do you know if they were playing that game or in terms of like they could bank the LTV in the future or how were they not ultimately just marking up the cost of ads in a way that ended up hurting them by funding it with debt? Yeah, totally. So I'm not sure the specifics with these guys. Yeah, you, like, I, you know, you may not know that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, look, I presume they're a very well-run brand, right? Like, I presume kind of they're very attuned to what their LTV is and what their CAC is and how they're thinking about trading off those two. It's actually something that we look at. So when we're basically assessing a brand in terms of seeing if they're eligible for funding, we're always looking at their LTV and their LTV to CAC ratios. And especially for a brand who's kind of in apparel, like we think that's really important. And if we see a brand that has like a really great LTV to CAC ratio, 
you know, we will have those conversations with them exactly like what you were saying there and saying like, hey, look, we can see that there's a ROI and acquiring additional customers here. We know that you've still got room on your marketing channels because we can see where your ROAS is. And even if it takes a small hit, the LTV to CAC is still super, super healthy. Why not use something like Wayflower to actually drive those incremental customers over you know, the next quarter or two? And then you've got next year, the year after that to actually be taking the revenue from them. That is super interesting. I didn't know you guys... I mean, that's so obvious to me in retrospect that like when you plug in, because the way that the mechanics of this work, right? At least when we used Wayflyer, it was essentially like we send you over our store and our marketing channels and you sort of plug that in. And I, I didn't even think about the fact that you guys would be measuring LTV to CAC, but that makes perfect sense. You guys just have your own internal calculation of that off of the data that you get. Yep, that's exactly it. So that's kind of like under the hood, it's how everything actually works, right? Is so right. exactly as you said, Brand comes to us, takes them two minutes, they just connect up their Shopify store, their Facebook, Google Ads channels, Google Analytics, whatever else it is. And then we're able to just kind of run all of that through our algorithm. So we get a really good sense of actually how the brand's performing, where there are opportunities. And so it, it kind of does two things. Like one, it's how we are able to make decisions on, you know, what is a good brand and one that we're kind of willing to fund. But then also we actually kind of surface a lot of those insights back to the brands themselves and say, hey, are you aware of this? Like you've got a really, really yeah. good brand here. <laughs> I could tell you for sure from working with brands, a lot of them are not aware of it. And I'm sure that, you know, you guys end up actually being a source of knowledge in that respect too. I know that'd be, it's probably helpful. Yeah, yeah, we, we try to. It's kind of, I mean, I guess probably same as yourself, right? It's the advantage of being able to work with, you know, hundreds, thousands of brands across different industries, different countries. Like you see what works, you see what doesn't, you're able to, you know, try and bring a few of those learnings to the customers that you work with. Yeah, makes tons of sense. That's really cool. Do you guys, in fact, I don't know the answer to this question. Do you guys do it, provide any other insight or help to brands that work with you in, in, in any other ways? Like, do you guys feed them any reports or have any strategic people getting on the phone with them saying, here's how you should do this? Yeah, we do. We actually do a lot. And <laughs> so the first thing is for anybody who signs up to Wayflower, we have analytics dashboards where we actually surface all of these metrics that we're using from a financing perspective, like back to them. So they're able to go in and see all the same LTV to CAC or whatever other reports it is that we're using. And then a part of that, we've got like a lot of internal teams who are experts in specific areas that any e-commerce brand would care about, right? So we've got people who are purely focused on the performance marketing side. We'll jump on a call with a brand, actually have run a report for them say, hey, look, here's what we see is working in your industry right now. Here's what's not. But then we do it as well on kind of the inventory and supply chain side as well. So that's actually a big focus for us right now. I mean, that's yeah. definitely... People get into e-commerce because they're good at performance marketing and they understand that side <laughs> of things. And then, and then they figure out as they're running companies that, oh gosh, there's actually a huge part of this business that has nothing to do with any of that. And it's really important. Totally. And, and, and again, like it's, it's not super sexy, like finance and operations, but like it's what makes these brands it's the whole ball game, man. Yeah, and, totally. And so, yeah, we do a lot of work there and it's kind of working on a couple of new products in this space at the minute, really focused on how do we improve people's supply chain? How do we get their products like to them, like faster, cheaper, make it more seamless? Over the past couple of years, it's obviously been a complete nightmare. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm yeah, often yeah. very glad I haven't been running an e-commerce store over the last yeah, couple right. of years. It's just yeah, yeah. super, super stressful. You've got containers yeah. all over the place. You know where they are, when they're landing. Yeah. It's all gotten super expensive. So these are the types of problems that we're trying to solve for uh, the yeah, brands we work just just a few weeks ago, you'll just get kicked out of this. We launched, I did an episode about a brand that was a furniture brand. And so they just have huge amounts, like the inventory is large. And so it was just was like, their problem was 40 containers worth of inventory, each worth about 70 grand in retail value, sitting off of 
the coast somewhere with nowhere to land, not because the supply chain backup was stuffed at the port anymore, but because their warehouses were full. And so because the warehouses were full, there was nowhere to unload the containers and take them to. And it was costing them $400 per container per day. So basically it was just like just 16 grand a day just going out the door. What a nightmare. What a, and it's not because they did something big and wrong. They're, these are smart people. Like this is like, it's yeah. just like the insanity of trying to order inventory over the last couple of years, you know? So yeah, it makes perfect sense. I interrupted you. You said you spoke as a good example, but you said you had a couple examples. I would love to hear any more. I think the using it to explore new marketing channels, presumably based off of, you know, an apparel brands, LTV or something like that. Other examples you're seeing of people using this well? Yeah, I think there's a couple. So um, one is a brand called Flabless. They're a really awesome brand. And what they've done is actually, so we worked with them to be able to supply kind of their short-term funding. But actually what I think has been most impressive about them is actually what they've done on the long-term growth side of things. So they've been able to like massively expand their product range. So they now have over like 500 products, men's, women's, kids. And they've also been able to open up in lots of new markets, develop new distribution points. And that's all the sort of stuff that's driving their longer term growth. And one of the reasons they've been able to do that is because working with Wayflower, they've kind of just like ticked that box of the working capital solution to fund all their inventory and freed up all the rest of their cash to be able to go and do those things. So I think they're doing a really great job on the long term growth side of things. And then another really cool one is Dock and Bay. So Dock and Bay are getting back into seasonal brands. So they're a towel brand. They do like quick dry towels, like really awesome brand. But as you can imagine, super seasonal, right? Like they sell the vast majority of their products in like three, four months, like during the summer. So they have huge amounts of pressure on their working capital outside of those. They're having to make all of their inventory orders obviously well before summer, which is, I don't know how many people are buying quick dry towels in December, probably not that many. But that's when they're having to go out and actually place all of their inventory orders that they're here for the summer periods. And so we've worked with those folks to be able to provide their working capital at those times. And then when the stock's coming in, when it's landed, when they're selling their goods through like May, June, July, you know, that's when they're actually paying back the funding, which of course makes sense, right? It's just really well aligned with them, with their peak seasons and their cash flow. Makes tons of sense. All right. We have just a couple minutes left. I want to talk. You have a framework that I like, and I just never thought about it in these terms before, but you had sent to me like, hey, there are actually seven ways to fund your business, basically. Short-term, long-term, whatever. However you're doing it, there's seven ways to do that. Can you rattle those off? And maybe if you have the ability to talk about sort of advantage, disadvantage to any of them, you don't have to give me a full speech on each one, but just in terms of top of mind, what makes them useful, what makes them challenging and sort of where they fit. I think it's a useful little way for operators to think about sort of what the tools available to them. Totally, totally. So let me let me run down through them real quick. So number okay, one, great. credit cards. Number two, you've got your bank loans. Three, your own profits, just bootstrapping it yourself. The fourth is equity. Fifth, crowdfunding, super popular, especially with some of the smaller brands. The sixth is inventory financing, which is something we haven't talked a huge amount about. And then the seventh is revenue-based financing, which is what Wayfair do. Inventory financing, by that, you mean like asset-based lenders, that sort of deal? Yeah, so that, that's basically where... Like, or you it, mean like in, settle? Uh, no, so it's like kind of like a, a very like specific like type of capital where like you will send them like your invoices. So this this kind of does yeah. overlap a little bit with, yeah, yeah. with what settle does. You literally send them yeah. your invoices. And they pay yeah. the invoices for you. So it, it actually can work out really well, can be a little bit expensive. And then one downside is they hold your stock right as collateral, which can be a little bit of a risk yeah. and a downside, uh-huh. as opposed to... With revenue-based financing, that's not the case, right? So your stock is not held as collateral. There's no security over it as well. Yeah, I mean, that's something we haven't talked about yet, but it's sort of a fascinating element of revenue-based financing. There's no collateral in this, is there? No, so we don't take any security or collateral. Yeah, that's remarkable. 
Yeah, cool. Okay, so that's great. Credit cards, bank loans, full bootstrap, your own profits, equity, crowdfunding, inventory financing, and revenue-based financing. You could sort of put a few of those into big categories of like, I think five of those are essentially different versions of debt and understanding how to use that debt well. Even crowdfunding, I think you would just basically classify as taking loans from people in some way. But yeah, anything you want to sort of point out in terms of big picture or small picture, like advantage, disadvantage on any of those that, that people are, are thinking about well or not well? So I think we talked a little bit about equity. Yeah. We talked a little bit about bootstrapping. So those things make sense. Inventory financing, you just mentioned the problem of collateral. Basically, there's risk there. I think bank loans, I think a lot of people are going to be thinking about a product like Wayflyer relative to a bank loan in particular. Maybe that's one to focus on because people are going to think about sort of the cost of the money of Wayflyer relative to a bank loan and the challenges of that. Maybe that would be a good one to speak to specifically. Yeah, yeah, totally. So advantages of bank loans, you can get really good rates and also they're, they're pretty flexible, right? So it's not like inventory financing where you're restricted to purely financing that inventory order. You're going to get cash in your bank. And you're going to be able to spend it on a few different things. And so, yeah, and, and also, right, they're tried and tested. Like, you probably have a relationship with your bank already. Downsides of bank loans. First of all, they're just not going to be available to a lot of early stage e-commerce businesses or honestly, even mid-stage e-commerce businesses. I talk to, like, brands who are doing over, like, $20 million a year and they still can't get bank loans. A lot of banks, and they're getting a little bit better, but they just don't really understand how e-commerce businesses work. A lot of the time they look for, they want collateral, right? So they want to know, okay, if you don't repay this loan, I'm going to go and take your store or your something, your home or whatever else it is. But actually e-commerce brands are very, very asset light. They don't have these assets and they don't have, you know, usually like lots of like stores or warehouses or whatever else it is. So it can be hard to get. And also, even if you do get one, you've probably spent a month or two filling that paperwork trying to get it, right? So it's just... The last thing you want to be doing is is doing that sort of stuff, but it can work really well. As I said, you know, specific use cases. If you're doing something like buying a warehouse or buying some sort of fixed asset like that, you're big enough that you're going to get access to it. You can use that asset as collateral on it, and you've got a nice bank who's not a massive pain in the ass to work with. Then, <laughs> um, yeah, it can yeah. work. It can work really well. Yeah. And the thing I've always heard from people, I've actually never gone and done this for exactly the reason you said, which is that I have not been in a place in a company where we've had enough time to go find the right bank partner and to go fill out the paperwork. It takes forever. And part of it is just like that banks have such different appetites for the kinds of loans they want to write, the sizes of loans, all those kinds of things relative to e-commerce. The people I know who have done this, and it does, it can work on the long term, but what they have done is they've shopped a lot of banks to go find who the right partner is. And just the problem is on both sides, right? Sometimes like, you know, you go find a bank and it's like, oh, they won't write a loan that's big enough. Uh, or sometimes it's on the other side where it's like, they are, they will write the loan, but yeah, it's going to take forever or your store isn't big enough, you know, whatever. Like, and so it just ends up being really challenging in every direction. So that makes a lot of sense. I think there's no question. I mean, it's, it's like, like you said, like the ease of sort of plug your store into Wayflyer or plug Wayflyer into your store as the case may be. And just go like, look, we can make this calculation really fast. We understand e-commerce so deeply that we can feed back to your LTV to CAC and use it to make our decision. A bank's never just gonna just never gonna think that way, you know? Exactly. And you know, I think the number one takeaway I'd want people to come away from this with is that the best brands are actually using all of these, right? Or a combination yeah, that's of right, like that's right. five or six of these. I talked to like a CFO of like a massive massive brand um, a couple of weeks ago. And he's talking me through, well, you know, for these types of things, I use this debt. For this over here, I'm using my equity finance. And for this over here, I'm actually just funding that with my existing profits or whatever else. And so it becomes more complicated the bigger you get as with everything. But actually the takeaway is just to be be thoughtful about it. 
you know now like the seven different types of finance that you have available to you and try and match them up with the actual initiatives that they're going to fund, right? The easy one is the short-term, long-term growth. But as you get bigger, as you get more sophisticated, you can also get more sophisticated with the sources of finance you use as well. That is awesome. It's a great spot to end on, I think. Stephen, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. This, I think, was a, this was a really helpful episode. I, think. I actually love talking to people who are either in an agency or in a service provider kind of spot because they have this advantage, which is like operators have the advantage of being in it every day and can speak to what that experience is like. Agency and software providers and, you know, in your case, a lender can be uh, super helpful because they see a million different businesses. And you just at any given time, you, you see kind of like you get pattern recognition around what's working and what's not. And I think what you just said at the end there is a perfect example of that, right? Which is the best brands are actually using multiple of these, maybe even all of them relative to different parts of their business and where they make the most sense. So Steven, thanks for your time so much. I appreciate it. No, thanks, Andrew. Okay, so I, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I thought Stephen was incredibly helpful. I had not thought in terms of sort of short versus long-term and different funding mechanisms for each of those, and especially his comment at the end there that the really smart operators, people he sees who are really sophisticated and doing this really well, are actually thinking about using multiple or even all of the different kind of funding tools for e-commerce businesses, positioning them the right way relative to where that debt or equity is the most useful. So if you would like to follow up and look into Wayflyer as a revenue-based finance partner for your business, go to wayflyer.com. That's the place to go check that out. And by the way, there's a link in the show notes there if you're not sure. So go check out the show notes, go to wayflyer.com. If you would like to follow up with me, hit me up on Twitter at Andrew J. Ferris. I've gotten some really good feedback recently, including some critical feedback of an episode I did at one point. It was so helpful to me. So whether you have good things to say or bad things to say, I would love to hear from you. Twitter's the spot to do that at Andrew J. Ferris, F-A-R-I-S. Otherwise, ratings and reviews are always appreciated. And uh, I hope all is well with you, with your business, and we will see you next time.